Hey everybody, Nick, once again, host of the Beer Got Me Here podcast. Continuing on with our historian series, we bring in Professor Malcolm Purinton, aptly named the Beer Historian, to go over his dissertation on the Pilsner titled Empire in a Bottle. I gotta say, what Malcolm had to talk about with his dissertation was quite epic. Malcolm takes us through a tale of history, espionage, war, lost treasures, love, heartbreak. Okay, well, you know, I didn't really come with some of those things. A few a few of those things, maybe, but not all of them. I just wanted to make it sound a little bit more epic than it really is. I mean, it is a pretty epic story. And I do hope you enjoy the story. That being said, Beer Got Me Here podcast presents episode four of the Rolling Hops Beer Tour Series Historian Edition. All right, ladies and gentlemen, back at you with another Beer Got Me Here podcast with your co-hosts for this evening, Garrett and myself, Andy. So we're really excited for a wonderful guest we have this evening, Mr. Professor Malcolm Purinton. So Malcolm Purinton is an is an affiliated faculty member at Emerson College and Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. He is a history professor, experienced beer scholar, and journalist who has been the regular beer columnist for the Northeast Regional Beer Periodical, Yankee Brew News, for several years. Skilled in food, environmental, and business history with specialized knowledge in the history of beer and brewing, marketing, and beer tourism. Malcolm completed his PhD in world history from Northeastern University. His dissertation, which we're very excited to talk about, was entitled Empire in a Bottle, How the Pilsner Lager Became the Imperial Beer from 1842 to 1930. So without further ado, we welcome you, Professor Malcolm Purinton. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, it's great to be here. Wonderful Thank to be on much here. For Thank you very much for joining us. We're so excited to talk to you. So maybe we'll just kick it off with an intro, very basic question for you. Tell us a bit about yourself and your connection to our favorite beverage, beer. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've, uh, I've been teaching, teaching history, world history, Europe, European history, history of empire and so on um, at the college university level for several years. Uh, been a home brewer for about, over 20 years uh, and uh, have enjoyed doing beer tours and doing different historic talks and just kind of studying the history of beer for probably the past God, 15 years or so um, on a scholarly level. So including archival research uh, as well as, well, getting to know brewers and having fun doing uh, brewery profiles for Yankee Brew News and doing interviews and uh, just kind of, it's become a huge piece of my life that I, well, I wasn't expecting. It's been a happy, happy turn. <laughs> but why particularly beer? Just a passion from your homebrew experience, perhaps from your, the consumption in your youth and your current state? What it, What is it? So it was actually kind of funny because like I, I never expected to have a basically a PhD in the history of beer. I, in college, you know, I liked beer. It was, it was fun. I, I was, Curious enough that friends, uh, friends of mine gave me like a the dictionary or encyclopedia of beer when I graduated, uh, and I was like, "Huh, that's kind of interesting." There's a whole lot more going on than I was really thinking about, and kind of followed through with that, like with home brewing, like reading more about historic styles and kind of how that happens. This was kind of like like 
early 2000s is kind of when I got into it. And at that point, I would consider myself a beer snob because <laughs> it was one of those times where I was like, yeah, you're offering me what? I mean, that thing's like, that, that's in a can. Um, that's weird. Do, do you have any idea what I, what I usually drink? And so I moved on as I started like studying beer more um, academically uh, to kind of recognizing that, you know, someone's offering me a can of, you know, something macro produced. I'm like, all right, you're not offering me that specific beer. You're offering me a shared experience. You're offering me like into your home, this is you're offering me something on a very different level than just, you know, something light. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was fun. I, I was started my graduate career kind of looking at the history of religion, honestly. Um, I was studying Arabic, learning the history of like Islam and the Middle East. Wow. And uh, I found myself eventually studying the history of beer through empire, which was an unexpected occurrence, honestly. Yeah, it was, uh, I was taking an African colonialism class where uh, basically I was doing my master's at Northeastern and I was trying to figure out, you know, it was kind of, it was for fun. I was doing, taking courses on just whatever I did not know anything about. Like that was my whole goal, which is kind of to learn broadly about the world as much as I could. And went to a beer fest, you know, <laughs> as you do, and uh, ran into the publisher of Yankee Brew News and talked to him about you know, yeah, beer and this and that, but I'm doing religion. He's like, hey, write an article for us. So I did one on beer and faith, kind of like faith in kind of the authenticity of craft beer, that type of a uh, type of way. And my professor who was doing I was African colonialism, she overheard friends of mine talking about the fact that I brew beer, that I am doing this article. And she's like, hey, why don't you write your final project, your big paper on the history of beer and African colonialism? And I said, are you serious? Are you serious? I mean, really? That's something I can actually do here? That's a, that's a thing? Uh, and she's like, yeah, you're a couple sources. Just kind of, kind of go for it. And it kind of really snowballed from there. I was like, yeah, do I want to like learn Arabic and go to a hot area? Or do I want to learn German and spend some time drinking beer in Europe? <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a transition I was very happy to make. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's not a bad trade to say <laughs> the least. Well, I want to get to your dissertation. I'm sure we all do in a moment, but can I Yankee Brew News? How long have you been writing for for Yankee Brew News? So I did a couple uh, feature articles, probably 12, 13 years ago, and then when I was back in Boston for my PhD, uh, a friend of mine from a running club uh, was leaving uh, his position as the Boston columnist. For Yankee Brew News. And so when he was leaving, he suggested my name and they were like, oh, that guy's still around or he's back. Cool. So that was, uh, <laughs> gosh, I think I, I got back into it and became the full-time columnist for Boston in, I want to say 2014, 2015. Wow, cool. um, yeah. So it's been a lot of fun doing a lot of brewery profiles within kind of like a regular bi-monthly column, just about, you know, the beer scene in the greater Boston area. It's a lot of fun. That's awesome. So like mostly like I'm unfortunately I haven't been able to check out the column, but like, do you like, do you mostly specialize like in beer reviews or like going to actual breweries, like beer culture, all of the above? Pretty much all of the above. The column itself focuses on the current like beer releases uh, and, you know, events kind of, 
you know, highlighting all of the local breweries um, and beer related events and people uh, for like the two months. So it's every, it comes out every, every two months. And then I'll do brewery profiles. So like delving into the stories of specific breweries uh, like Bone Up Brewing Company and Lamplighter Brewing Company, a bunch of like, you know, kind of like the newer ones, kind of see where they're at, what their stories are. You know, I mean, being a historian, it's basically I'm a storyteller, you know, with, you know, context. I guess, historical context. Uh, so I can do that with like the profiles and other kind of, you know, whatever they ask me to write. It's a lot of fun. Kind of keeps me connected on what's going on right now. Uh, you know, even when I'm looking at archival documents and such. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you said before we started the podcast that you're not in Boston anymore, like for the past year or so. So are you still able to keep up with your column? Do you just do this? Oh yeah, like, no. Yeah, how, you don't get to visit the breweries in Boston uh, anymore, I suppose. So how do you do how, it? Well, honestly, few people could over the past year. Um, Correct. I mean, as That's things true. have finally started kind of opening up over the past month or so, uh, I'm missing out on some of those reopenings. Uh, but I'll be back there this fall. Uh, and so for the past year, it's been more just. Well, honestly, checking in on everybody, just making sure that they're doing okay and being able to kind of, you know, get what they're doing to uh, during the transition with the pandemic uh, in terms of, you know, greater distribution, you know, uh, working with canning distribution, buying their own canning systems, uh, figuring out how to get through the pandemic uh, without the taproom model really working um, for most of a year. So it's been remote for all of us really, um, for the brewers, for everybody else. And so I've been able to, it's not hard to fill up a, a column. It's about, you know, a thousand to 1500 words when there are so many great breweries all across the greater Boston area and a couple that even opened during the pandemic. Uh, mm. So it's been an interesting time. Uh, well, you know, even the remote part, uh, able to sample some some of the good wares that have been uh sent up to me which has been a pleasure honestly <laughs> can't go wrong with beer mail <laughs> exactly yeah of course we actually we've connected before with a, a podcast just outside of boston these guys who have a beer podcast and they've we learned a lot from them just about um just what's going on in the greater boston area just obviously you got Sam Adams, but hey, a hell of a lot more stuff all over oh, Boston. Yeah. Just sounds like a, a boom town for craft beer. Yeah, no, it's been fantastic. I mean, the whole, because like within like kind of like the smaller, you know, tighter um, Boston area, you know, there's not very much space. I mean, you got Democracy Brewing, which is like very like right downtown. For the most part, you know, finding space has been a little bit difficult uh, for a lot of them. But I mean, Castle Island recently, got a place that is right much closer to the actual castle island instead of farther south and kind of seeing how all of these different uh, brewers are really looking for spaces and how to work that within a very tight urban area that you know it's more difficult to finding the right you know water connections as well as sewage connections and like all the how do you build up a brewery uh and well it's you know, it's fun following their stories, you know, the ups and the downs. And a lot of them have survived, like nearly all of them, which has been great. Boston's a funny city because it's, I think our friends were telling us like Boston itself is pretty small. Like Boston, it's just like 
it's like 20 cities that are kind of together that make up Boston. I made up that number. It's probably very wrong, but um, like you, so I, the actual breweries in Boston we've heard are not so many, but then around like in Cambridge or um, the other cities, like there's, there's just a all over the area rather than the city itself. It just seems to be thriving. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every, uh, like the greater Boston area, whether it's you know, Cambridge, but also Somerville, Everett, um, all the way through, like it's where people can find space, they are building out, finding those old unused warehouses, finding those, you know, places that used to hold, you know, rock quarry, like, you know, rock finishing and, you know, I mean, God, you name it. <laughs> That's one of the great things about like that reclamation of architecture, being able to transform all of it, as long as it's, you know, got a decent, you know, water level <laughs> and place for everything to go, then you can pretty much transform most spaces into a decent brewery, whether even it's one barrel to start mm -hmm. or you're jumping up to like 33 right from the get-go, you know, you never really know. But they've all been making it work really nicely. And the towns have been working with them too. Like really, the, like the town legislation has made it more, uh, much easier for people to be able to start their breweries and, and really rejuvenate all the little areas of these towns to kind of bring them together into like a broader kind of Boston brewing uh, capital. It's wonderful. Love yeah, seeing just... that like community between craft beer, like, sorry, I didn't catch off, but like you see that a lot in southern ontario as well and like some of the breweries that we work with so it's it's really nice to see that it, it's not just you know in one area it's actually across north america it's always good to hear yeah oh no absolutely because i mean you're not going to have another sierra nevada i mean independently owned type of thing like mm -hmm. you're not going to have another like i mean it's gonna be very hard for any larger regional brewery to kind of take off but that's not the goal of mm -hmm. most of the breweries that are starting right now. You know, they're looking for, well, their own space and really, you know, using the taproom model is kind of, you know, the new pub model, kind of bringing people with their families to the space, you know, mm -hmm. just as German beer gardens used to be back in like late 19th century in the Midwest, same type of deal, kind of, it's a family space. It's a place we go to hang out and, you know, not just kind of part of your face off. It's a place to, commune and sip and have a nice time uh, over a very fresh beer. Yeah, it's a new cultural identity, isn't it? Like it's, it is sort of the North American pub now that's this culture is being spread out throughout the world. I mean, craft beer is thriving in odd corners of the planet. There's, there's thriving craft beer scenes, as I'm sure you're well aware. Yeah, it's kind of a, a, something I've, I've talked about a bit with, honestly, with my students a lot. It's kind of instead of what, you know, if we look at it kind of like late, 19th, late 20th century, um, the Coca-Colaization, the McDonaldization of the world, like the export from North America was uh, kind of a flattening of flavor. It was a, you know, a culture that's kind of being enveloped by the greater kind of like American culture. Well, now it's kind of an export of authenticity. It's an export of craft, an export of the local. Like when I was in South Africa, uh, doing research there, I mean, there was beers that were being made with local ingredients, which <laughs> you wouldn't have seen beforehand. I mean, especially with like specific types of herbs and spices. And I was like, you know, I, I went to a beer bar in Cape Town and I was like, so it says here that it's, it's a South African craft beer. Can you tell me more? Uh, and the bartender was like, 
made in South Africa. And I'm like, all right, can you add me anything else here, <laughs> please? <laughs> Something more specific I can latch on to. Um, he couldn't really give me much, but <laughs> there, there were a few breweries that were doing that. And that's something you see. I mean, the, using local spices, local herbs, um, you know, adding the, your own kind of, you know, the beer terroir to craft beer. So that's like the new export. Mm -hmm. The export is, is, is the local, which is almost kind of, it's the idea of authenticity, the idea of the local that is being exported, not the actual Coca-Cola, the actual, you know, Big Mac or whatever. Yeah, it's, it is a, a huge shift, isn't it? Sort of from the 20th century United States, the biggest export to the world perhaps is this notion of consumption. And while it's not that McDonald's isn't that good, but hey, it's really cheap and you can get a lot of it. Same as Budweiser or Colgate toothpaste or something. Um, yeah, exactly. And then this is sort of, Garrett and I, we like to say that it's sort of a, a renaissance or a revolution, sort of a, a complete pushback. So from these from these German style of the German style lager that was so prevalent in the 20th century back to, okay, let's focus on the ale again, because craft beer by and large up until kind of now, I mean, the lager is getting a little bit more respect in the craft beer market now, mm -hmm. but definitely if you look at the craft beer scene and it's still in its infancy, it's, it's definitely a, an ale, an ale heavy culture. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the whole beginning of craft beer is kind of, it's wrapped around the ale completely. Mm -hmm. It's wrapped around like the, I mean, the European visits by Americans in the late seventies, early eighties and going, coming back and being like, what in the world am I supposed to do now? I want to taste all those things and no one's making it. So I'm going to do the, do that. But a lot of them also came back wanting to be able to produce a nice golden lager, like a true Pilsner, whether it was a Czech Pilsner or like a German Pils. That's for a number of brewers that I've talked to that came back and started brewing in the eighties. That's been their, their game changer. That's their baby that they've been working towards. Um, one of my favorites in Vermont, zero gravity. Uh, was I, when I was up there writing my dissertation, I decided to go hang out because I was just like, I need to actually be around people and talk about this with a brewer. And yeah, he was just telling me like, you know, he just started producing this green mountain lager. It is a nice like check pills. It's solid. It's nice and simple, clean, crisp. And I was like, so what's the deal here? Are you just trying to like gain a different market? He was like, no, no, this is what I've wanted to do all along. I wanted to make, you know, like, yeah, you know, like my black IPAs, like the double IPAs, that's all working really well. But I wanted to be able to do this because this is the most difficult thing. It is just the simplest, mm. which makes it the hardest to do with such a finite number of ingredients. Uh, and honestly, that conversation really changed my whole perception because um, I've heard that from several brewers. I was kind of like, yeah, I've been wanting to make a Pilsner this whole time but and now i can finally do it now now i actually can get it and it's and it's you know satisfying for them on a different level as a brewer not just as someone producing beer for uh for the, the craft beer public yeah absolutely well i think that's a great way to sort of segue into your dissertation malcolm which i unfortunately i was able to locate some of it but it's it's not di difficult to track down. So I know that you have a focus of, 
of the actual Pilsner itself. So that's kind of your main focus and why it became, why and how I suppose it became um, the imperial choice. So through colonization, how it sort of spread to be the hegemonic beer of the 20th century, I guess, as well as the 19th century. Is that fair to say? Like maybe, can you give us a bit of a rundown why you were particularly interested in the Pilsner? I know you gave us a bit of the story uh, talking to your, I think your supervisor about that. But yeah, what was some of the inspiration towards that and give us a bit of a summary on the dissertation as well. So just as my perception of craft beer was not Pilsner, and my perception of like originally hearing, you know, seeing the uh, the Green State Lager and being like, hmm, he's just trying to hit a new demographic. Uh, Pilsner was not my favorite at all. Honestly, my least favorite um, when I started uh, writing. Um, my master's thesis was on the history of the Indian Pale Ale. Cause I was like, you know, hearing all the myths and legends and being yes. like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, more hops, more alcohol. I'm like, oh yeah, well, let's <laughs> find out what the story is. I'm like, oh yeah, that's not at all true whatsoever. So that's fun. Um, and then, so when I started my PhD, I was looking at, with my advisor being a British empire historian, I was like, all right, it's gonna be a British empire and it's gonna be a beer. That's all I walked in with. I had no idea. I was actually starting it at a Washington State University, in like Eastern Washington State. I had moved across the country to start this. I moved back the next year when she got a job back where I got my master's, which is funny. Uh, the Pilsner came about really kind of in a, in a weird way. I was actually, um, I was in Moscow, Idaho, um, on a Monday night at a bar, uh, swing dancing um, on the top, on the second floor. And I was like, all right, I need a break. You know, all these spins, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go hang down by the bar. I just saw one of those like posters. It's one of those kind of like 1950s style uh, retro things. And it was like, you know, guy up there, big chiseled jaw and everything being like, beer, bringing you great times since 1842. I was like, that's really weird date. I, I was like, that seems so odd. Beer's been around for thousands of years <laughs> or, I mean, helping everybody, I mean, whether it's just taxation for governments or it's for social lubricants, uh, who knows? It's kind of like, what is this gonna be? So I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I dove in, found out the first Pilsner was made in 1842. Pilsen at that point, part of the Austrian empire, um, now Czech Republic. And I was like, okay, well, that's kind of, that's cool, but that has nothing to do with the British Empire. I mean, what's that going to be? So, doing my research, doing all my reading, reading through some brewery history stuff, came across a, uh, a court case uh, in 1890. And this judge, so basically, a bunch of the town, um, the burghers, basically like the businessman of Pilsen, uh, they came to London 1890 or so, and they were trying to trademark the name Pilsner. Um, so. Pilsen, the city, the ER on the end in German means from Pilsen. You know, it should be geographically very specific. Uh, And so that's what they were arguing. You know, we want to trademark the name. And the judge ruled against them saying, uh, this beer is not, you know, it's divorced of its geographic origin. Like a a Pilsner is, is a style. It is now something completely different. You cannot trademark this name, which is why they then changed the name to Pilsner Knell. Um, in Pilsen. And so that means Pilsner from the source, roughly translated. And I was like, well, that's really weird. I mean, so from 1842 to 1890, so you've got less than 50 years and suddenly this beer is big enough that a London judge, a British judge is not, is going to rule against 
the name Pilsner being trademarked. And that's when I started kind of, you know, I guess pulling the thread. I'm like, what is happening here? Because the British weren't producing lagers at this point on any scale that would be meaningful. And so that's when I kind of started diving deeper because studying the history of empire, the British empire ruled over, you know, a quarter of the world's population. I mean, a quarter of the world's landmass, 70% of the world's population. And they weren't drinking British beer. British beer is the, that British, that's the national drink. So my main question started being just, that doesn't make any sense. Why? Why in the world does that beer style over all others, and especially within empire, uh, how does this work out? And so the big question became, you know, I mean, the British Empire seems to be the least likely place for a beer that becomes associated with the Germans for people to be drinking that, especially as you leave, you know, at the metropole, you leave the city, you know, your country, your home, you're going to generally be more, I don't know, almost hyper-nationalist. You know, you're going to be speaking English where you're going. You're going to be, you know, wearing British fabric. You're going to be, you know, enjoying the everything British. I mean, you see this in British Honduras, you know, now Belize. You see this in South Africa. You see this in Australia, where it's almost like this identity of being British in the colony is much stronger than being British in London. But they weren't drinking ales. They weren't drinking bass. They weren't producing a British-style ale by the 1890s. So... That's how my dissertation kind of began, where I was like, ha, huh. all right, let's dive into the how. And then yeah. we can figure out the why. I'm, I'm dying. How? Why, Malcolm? Why? <laughs> and how? To think it started so, with a poster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, I just kind of like, yeah. It just so you're saying by 1890, mm-hmm. the British Empire, like the British colonies around the world, the lager was the main, the main drink through the, the 1890s that's that's when that transition happens that's when yeah. the kind of flip happens uh and it's it's not even just british colonies i mean it's japan as well i mean yeah. it is of course the united states but that was a bit earlier mostly due, due to migration uh czech and german migration mm-hmm. um 1840s 1850s but so i did my 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 case study was really south africa um i was like all right british colony you know, had been bought by bought from Napoleon 1815, 1814. So this is gonna be the most, you know, least likely place. Especially when it's financed financed by British <laughs> too. Now, I'll get back to that. So the how. <laughs> the how. The how tends to be a bit easier than the why. Um, the why, I don't know if you guys have done much, you know, history classes or anything, but my teachers have always been, you know, what tell me why? What is the why? I'm like, that is the hard part. I can tell you how. The why, that takes a lot more thought. So, all right, so I did uh, the how. That was, you know, diving into looking at where the Pilsner originated. So we're looking at Pilsen, we're looking at the continent because you can't quite look at the Austrian empire at that point. You can't really tie that, you know, divorce that from the rest of the continent, especially when you're looking at beer production. So. I set up my dissertation looking at a comparative kind of analysis, looking at uh, British brewing industry and the continental brewing industries or industry. And they're very different. So the British were really 
I mean, they're the first ones to industrialize. So we're looking like, you know, mid 18th century. You know, they're the ones that came up with the thermometer. You know, woohoo, this is amazing. Um, and like, you know, the hydrometer, sacrometer, and it's like, well, the brewers are like, hey, this is awesome. Um, and then the tax collectors are like, this is even more awesome. <laughs> now, now let's go with a malt tax. This is going to be amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so they're producing the ales and they're really the British were the top. Like, I'll say up until about 1860, like they're producing the best beer in the world on a quantity that was, you know, no one else could really compete with. Uh, and key to that is also like, they were also the most um, consistent. So it's, you know, I don't know if you guys homebrew, but like, you know, the consistency is, it's nice to have. I mean, just, <laughs> just, just, just as any like, you know, like, you know, someone just starting their own brewery, it's like, ah, oh, good, this does taste close to what I wanted it to from the lab I made this beer. Yeah, okay, cool. You know, you gotta keep the temperature. I mean, the consistency, of, like all the different aspects to, to it, whether it's, you know, yeah. And yeah. so the British were like, they were the top, they were, they were excellent. On the continent, you know, you had, well, I mean, you had some yeah, different empires, Austrian empire, then the Austrian-Hungarian empire. Germany doesn't even become a country until 1871, same thing with Italy. So there's a lot of other things happening on the continent. The British were kind of keeping to their, for the brewing industry, keeping to themselves and very proud of being British. You know, we have the expansion of the British empire, um, not to the extent that it does in the late 19th century, but their beer was just really good. And on the continent, um, in Pilsen particularly, you have, you know, in 1839, basically, uh, you had the beginning of Pilsen. Of, of the Pilsner. 1836, you had a beer tester going from the Austrian Empire, visiting via train just to test the beer, making sure the beer was healthy enough to drink. He said no. He was like, no, this beer is terrible. This beer is absolutely horrible. You should pour the whole thing out. And wow. Pilsner was like, you know, a growing town, like a big, like he was like, you know, and you gotta have a good brewery. Uh, so what they did is they hired an architect, um, uh, Martin uh, Stelzer. And to travel around Europe, let's find out what the what the best beer is. Well, and by best beer, you know the most modern beer. You know what is like if we're going to build a whole new brewery that's going to be really tight. How are we going to do this? So he travels around for a couple of years. He comes back, 1839. They start you know producing uh, some new something new. Like here's what we're doing. We're going to be doing a lager. So bottom fermented beer. This is totally the new thing. You know, like we're in Bohemia, Bavaria's right here. You know, Germany's totally on top of it. Spot and Brewing Company. We've got Gabriel Settemeyer Jr. Uh, and his friend Anton Dreyer who's over in Vienna. Did, did you guys know about this this story with uh with Gabriel Settemeyer and, and Anton? Not so the whole I, I've heard it before. Yeah. It is just such a fun story. So Gabriel Settemeyer, like so his father um buys Spotten back in like the 18th century and uh, he's like, cool, I'm going to do this whole thing. We're going to be doing some, some lagering. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to be, you know, lagering, meaning to store, you know, storing the beer for longer periods of time, bottom fermentation, all this type of stuff. And, but in order to become a brewer in continental Europe, you had to travel. I mean, you had to go visit a number of different breweries. You had to learn what other people were doing. You weren't just kind of an apprentice in one brewery. In Great Britain, that's what you were, though. You had family firms. You had family mm. businesses. So you would apprentice. The managers of these brewing companies would be, you know, the family. It would be the son of the guy who founded it. And 
well, it's not, it doesn't really run in the family sometimes. I mean, you can't really, you can't guarantee that your son's going to be a good manager if you happen to be. And same thing with a brewer. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, I can't guarantee that the education that you have as an apprentice within the same brewery, I mean, you're not going to be exposed to the new things. You're not going to be exposed to, you know, the best practices, if you will. So Gabriel Sotomayor Jr. and Anton Dreyer, they, they kind of met up. Anton Dreyer is from Vienna, uh, Schweckhat Brewing Company. He was going to be inheriting. Gabriel Sotomayor Jr. was going to be inheriting. So they kind of team up and start traveling around together, learning all the best practices. They're like, you know what we're going to do? We, we got to go to Great Britain because that's the best place. This place is, you know, Britain is producing the best beer, best consistency. We need to learn from them. So travel around, visit a whole bunch of breweries. And, you know, the brewers are just kind of like, hey, yeah, cool. That's awesome. Here, have a couple samples. Uh, well, cool. Can, can you tell us how you do your thing? You know, can you look at your books? You're like, <laughs> that's so cute. Uh, you guys are, you guys are, you know, you continentals. Jeez, seriously. Um, so whole big thing, industrial espionage. It's the best. I mean, they, they were traveling around. They uh, basically took some like pipes, painted them to look like canes, a nice little valve on the bottom and like would take samples and go kind of test them. You know, they may able to get a hydrometer, figure out like what's going on, keep all these notes. And they bring this knowledge back to the continent. Um, how to produce pale malt, you know, learn more about malt conversion, figuring out all of that knowledge, bring it back. They kept it to themselves at first. Uh, like they, they were like, okay, we, we have the in now for the continent. But then they decided, you know what, we, got, we should just share this. And that kind of becomes what continental brewing is through the 19th century, is sharing knowledge. Mm. Something that the British brewing companies really refused to do completely. Uh, and so with my dissertation, this is like the how is like this comparison of like what was going on with the British versus the continent. Now the British were really, you know, close-fisted about knowledge, about anything. Now it's like it's the firm. They're focusing on tied houses. So basically, like, okay, the brewing, like you know, it was a zero-sum game for you know how many cons- consumers can you get in Great Britain. So we're going to buy up as many you know pubs as possible, and they can only serve our beer. And now we know we have a consistent you know source to send all of our production. On the continent, it was like, let's figure out the best way to do this. You know, they adopted, you know, like instead of just apprenticeships, it's a broad knowledge um, building that's coming along. And so they start sharing their knowledge. I mean, Anton Dreyer comes up with the Viennese lager, you know, utilizing not just like the lagering techniques that that were being developed, you know, in Southern Germany, you know, Bavaria and so forth, but they were then adding the nice pale malting techniques that they had been learning in England, you know, bring that back. So after, you know, 1836 in Pilsen and, you know, Martin Steltz, you know, Seltzer, he's like coming back. He's like, all right, we're going to build the most modern brewery that we can right now, 1839. I brought this, you know, totally awesome brewer with me. His name is, you know, Joseph Grohl. You know, he's from a brewery. Um, we're going to sign him for a one-year contract. You know, we'll just kind of figure this whole thing out. And so they're working on it. They use some, you know, local malts, but using this pale malting technique, you know, some local hops, bring everything together. And so 1842, what ends up is they end up with a light golden lager for the very first time. I mean, the pale ales from Great Britain, you can't compare. These things are being lagered. There's so much going into that lagering process. And so suddenly you have the very first light golden beer. I mean, really? 
And all right, cool, it's a Pilsner. This is awesome. But how that expands, that's where you have more. Cause like they're utilizing not just like this new technique, but they're also adapting to the changes of the 19th century, the industrialization of, of continental Europe, you know, of Germany, of France, you know, of, of all these areas, science. They're adopting, uh, you see this kind of bifurcation of brewers in the later 19th century. You have practical brewers and you have scientific brewers. Continental brewers are going on the scientific route, microbiology utilizing the microscope on a different level. Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur, you know, publishes Les Tudes sur Bier, uh, 1876. So studies on beer. Like, hey, this is what yeast is. This is the life process of yeast. And how amazing is that? <laughs> and they start utilizing that even more. Emil Hansen takes that knowledge in 1883 to figure out how to isolate a single yeast cell. We have a pure yeast revolution. And the continental brewers, so Emil Hansen at Carlsberg, they're sharing, they have a school at Carlsberg, an international school. Brewers are coming in from Brazil to come and study. The original yeast for Carlsberg came from Spaten. The original yeast from Heineken comes from Carlsberg. And they're able to replicate that all the way through. You can see a line of just the sharing of information, which honestly you can really reflect with craft beer in general right now too. Um, this, sure. that type of attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, so I looked at, for my dissertation, looking at the science and technology, differences, choice, and building up labs. You know, Bass started one in Burton-upon-Trent. They had one of the first British brewers to have a lab. Um, cool, good for them. They were still far behind what was going on in the continent. They were, they were still isolated. You know, then look at business. You know, the British brewing firms, they're family firms. They're really focused on domestic, ex domestic consumption, tide houses. You know, export, yeah, to the colonies, of course, because the colonies are British and they want British ales. But the continent was looking at, let's do this and let's do this and, you know, trying to make it as efficient and, you know, and just the best possible pro process. So the education, okay, yeah, you can apprentice, but you're going to be going to brewing schools in Prague. You're going to brewing schools, you know, at Carlsberg. You're going to be like, learning the science, the chemistry of malt conversion. You'll be learning the microbiology of yeast. You're gonna isolate single yeast cells and use that specific yeast onwards. So your beer is gonna be a lot more consistent. You're gonna be lagering, which in itself, you know, you're gonna be developing a beer that is very consistent with very little sediment too. It's gonna be a lower alcohol. I mean, oh God, all of the British travelers in the late, uh, 19th century, just talking about, you know, how different the beer was on the continent and going, wow, you know, I could have like several, I could have like four, five, six beers. It was a whole day. It was amazing because the beer is lower alcohol. You know, you have like one British beer. It is going to be heady as they called it. It's going to be strong. It's gonna be like, cool. I had two. Good night. Okay. I'll catch you tomorrow, guys. <laughs> <laughs> While you're hanging out on the continent, you're like, hey, that was a great night. You know, let's do it again tomorrow. So all of that's kind of wrapped up. Like the how is like all of these different processes going on, all these different pieces falling into place. And the export, because they're also tied not just to the breweries, the labs, they're tied to universities. They are tied to the governments. The German government is subsidizing the beer exporting through the shipping companies going down to Africa. It's like, all right. 
we got to get a bunch of stuff from Africa. Um, we're going to fill up this shipping, you know, huge ship with beer. And, you know, we'll subsidize that. Well, it's all tied into country itself. So that's kind of a bit about the how. That's kind of, that's, that, that's how that kind of goes. Really um, in-depth how. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> but there's so much more to know. Like, I still, I know. So I much still don't know a lot, Malcolm. I still, <laughs> I can only imagine how different it would be without the industrial espionage behind it. Yeah. yeah. That might've been a game changer. God, I'm glad I didn't go into a detailed account. <laughs> I'm sorry you didn't. <laughs> I think that means that we have to read the dissertation, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm very interested. Yeah, I'm rewriting it into a much more palatable book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that's, what I'm work that's what I've been working on right now, um, aside from cool. the teaching and the long lectures. Um, and it should be a lot more fun. Dissertations are, well, a good dissertation is a done dissertation. Um, so it, <laughs> a book, a book is something that you can kind of go, oh, this is fun. <laughs> this is an enjoyable read, uh, adding a little bit more narrative to getting it done. When uh, Malcolm, when will the, when's the book set to be released? So we're looking probably like, um, like year and a half to two years. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Got, uh, yeah. Got several chapters already like revised and stuff like that. Um, and getting that kind of out, out to the out to the publisher soon to get all of it all of it together. So I I coming here should be a bit sure. easier. Yeah, I suspect you don't have a title for us to look out for, but not quite yet. All not right. quite yet. Beer espionage, <laughs> perhaps. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's looking at the world expanse. I mean, the Pilsner is the top beer in the world, like by far. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. it, it still is today. But the British still dominated the like international trade. So who are the Germans or like the Central Europeans? Who are they trading to? Just them, uh, just among themselves? Are they allowed to trade to to the British mm -hmm. Empire? Are they allowed to trade internationally? So something that's interesting about this is that like looking at the kind of the history of empire, um, how that has been working like through like through academia. Uh, initially, it's been looking at like, you know, the colony or the metropole, like the originator, but like the home country. Then it became kind of like looking at that, that relationship just between the two. Like, okay, we can't really like look at the history of empire, the British empire without looking at London and, you know, South Africa, Kenya, so on, India. Uh, but now, so basically what my work actually, actually has shown is that you can't really look at empire without looking at the overlapping empires because the trade wasn't being stopped. Like you had, had German beers and English beers and French beers and wine and so on, like in every colony, I mean, all over. Wherever there was a port like that, they were gonna trade with whoever they could. But it was different between the, uh, the British and the continent. Uh, I mean, the Germans were exceptional at export trade. Uh, like Hamburg, for instance, I mean, they, I mean, you had breweries that were, you know, like okay cool now we've got a rail a railroad and we've got a port and we're mm -hmm. just gonna just gonna go gangbusters like look, it's just we're producing for um you know economies of scale that's what we're focusing on and we're gonna focus on that export trade because i mean you go to every single town in germany still today you're gonna find some local beer it's gonna be awesome but mm -hmm. hey if you start producing more you're not gonna sell your town's beer at the next town 
because you guys got a rivalries. I mean, you're not going to go, go to the next town and be like, Hey, could I have that town's beer? It's like, just go to that town, man. Don't, why are you here? If you want that beer. So you got to export that, take that someplace else. Um, and what's funny about that too, is that in the, in the late 19th century, looking at the newspapers, the colonial newspapers, um, you will find ads for, you know, famous British brewing companies. You'll find bass, all salt, salt. Um, you'll find all of like a very specific brand, but then you'll also see next to that. And we've got some lager or we've got some bottom fermented beer. You're going to see, it's going to be a style. You, you'll even see Pilsner specifically. So it's another piece of it. It's not like, oh, we don't have, you know, this specific beer from the specific brewery in Hamburg um, or Bremen. It's going to be, we've got some lager here. We've got bottom fermented beer and everybody knows what that is. That's the thing. Everybody knows what that means. So what ends up happening is when you have colonial brewers start producing, you know, producing beer in the 1890s, it's really kind of where that switch happens. Uh, they're not producing ales. Like they don't want to. They are like, especially because you know, like 1880, 1870s, three years, I think it was 1873, we had the Carl Valland mechanized refrigeration system coming through. Um, Spaten is the very first brewery to start using mechanized refrigeration for lagering. And now by the late 19th century, you're able to see mechanized refrigeration in colonies. So you can lager in hot climates. And now that's what they want to do because, well, it's become the modern beer. Another thing I kind of argue is that part of what, part of the why is the impression of what in the world Pilsner was. All of like the how of technology, of education, of business, of science. You don't have a practical brewer producing lager. You have a scientific brewer producing mm -hmm. lager. We're entering the 20th century. I mean, come on, this mm -hmm. is a modern age. You wanna be drinking a modern beer. Unfortunately, that was not a British beer. Mm -hmm. So it's wrapped up all these different specific aspects. So Jeffrey Pilcher, who, who you've uh, talked to in another podcast, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, he came up with this idea of uh, this embodied imagination and archives of taste, um, which I utilize um, in one of my chapters, looking at taste, looking at the why, because that why, like how do you describe a food? How do you describe a style of beer? And how do you distinguish that from something else um, in writing? I mean, you can, you can do a taste mm -hmm. test of a couple of beers and be like, that one's different from that one. That one's more bitter. That one's more bright. And that one's this. But how do you do that with the archives? You have to build it. You have to figure out the descriptors. You have to see what multitude of journalists and writers and colonial administrators are writing about their places and how they're describing that style, how they're describing that food. I mean, you can transfer this to other commodities as well. You know, who's producing the best uh, tire, for instance, you know, like we're talking about like the rubber coming from South Africa, or we're talking about the rubber coming from Indonesia, I mean, Indochina. Um, how are we going to describe this? Well, you see what they're writing, how they're, you know, the adjectives that are being used. And then you build up that archive of taste. And then you figure out the why. And that's where the fun comes in. It's like, Ooh, I figured it out. <laughs> I, I've taken something that seems so esoteric and so subjective and with kind of like that metadata, a ton of reading, you figure out just, you figure out that why. 
why not just a few people were choosing this, but why the world was choosing this and then continued and continues to choose this specific style. Wow. It's cool. It's heavy. Why is, is yeah. <laughs> just trying to soak all that up. That's awesome. Yeah. It's fair. Yeah. I'm moved, Malcolm. I'm moved. Yep. I am moved as well. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Again, from a poster. I can't get over that. <laughs> Dude, I was swing dancing in Moscow, Idaho. It was one of the weirdest places I've ever been. 1842. Yeah. How something did you really go back to swing mind. dancing or did you can just jump right into right like research? Yeah, you just started <laughs> reading. It's just stuck acting. in my mind. It was such a specific date. I mean, you can't say a specific date about any other style of beer. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, perhaps if you go with a black IPA, you could delve into like Greg Newton's bit from Vermont Pub and Brewery from, uh, I think it's 1987. So that's something, but I mean, black IPA is also kind of a misnomer, right? How can you have a black pale? But yeah. the Pilsner, I mean, it just, you have a date. It's so specific. That makes the story so, uh, just so tangible, you know? Mm. You can grasp onto it. I mean, God. Martin Cornell's working on kind of, you know, his book on the porter, you know, kind of, you know, how do we describe the porter? Where does it come about? You know, you have all these different ideas of like, you know, the three threads theory or kind of like, you know, the roasting, you know, someone messed up roasting some malt and, but the Pilsner, it's 1842 in Pilsen on a specific date. So it's like, it's amazing. So yeah, I know it was a poster. I wasn't even having a beer in the pub. I was too dehydrated from dancing. <laughs> yeah, you know, being, a, being a guy swing dancing, I was, you know, there weren't very many of us, so it was fun. Right. Uh, so just rocking it. Actually, you'll have to share the book on that on that porter. That sounds interesting too. I'm when I like dive into all this stuff. It sounds great. Oh yeah. Oh, check out Zithophile, uh, Martin Cornell's blog. He is okay. uh yeah. Honestly, I've gone to him for distinctions on, on British styles for a while. He's located in, in Britain, solid beer historian. The guy like dives deep. He's a bit of a curmudgeon, um, which I love. He's all about like, <laughs> like so you said this. I'm going to write about it in my blog and be like, but you're wrong here, 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 here. <laughs> here are the sources and how I know all about it. I'm like, yeah, dude, I totally get it. That's exactly what I love that. <laughs> yeah, definitely have to check that out. That sounds cool. Yeah, yeah, well, like, like, oh, it should be out soon enough, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm very excited for the book, Malcolm. So, but I guess two years. Too. I'll have to wait. I'll Hopefully have to wait sooner. Uh, it kind of depends on, on how the publisher works out. Um, mm. So <laughs> as soon as I'm done teaching so much, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> once my semester is over again, it'll be a lot easier. Well, Malcolm, we're, we're losing time here. This feels like we've only been chatting with you for a few minutes, but yeah. could you touch quickly on why South Africa for your dissertation? Why did you particularly focus <laughs> on that country for your, that was, for your research? Oh, that was a lot of fun too. So my original idea- <laughs> Just wanted to travel. <laughs> no, that was kind of a happy accident. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so I was in the British archives, um, the public records archive, basically like the colonial archives of the British empire. Um, God, I missed grad school for that. So I was just like, I was going to London like every freaking year. It was awesome. Uh, so diving into just, it is, you know, wide net. So I'm looking through colonial records from as many colonies as possible being like, all right, 
is anyone talking about lager? Is anyone talking about Pilsner? Is anyone talking about any of these things? And in, uh, in the 1890s, the like head of the colonies basically based in London sent out uh, basically kind of a, a form to every single colonial administrator being like, all right, can you tell us the state of the economy in your colony? And, you know, we're talking, you know, talking about, you know, what, what agricultural goods are being used? What type of animals, you know, what are people buying? Are they buying British goods? Are they buying other people's goods? And the only one I found was from South Africa. And they had a whole like two pages about beer. And basically that was it. That's all I had. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, that's pretty much it. I decided to also check out British Honduras because I found some good articles um, from some journals and you know, present day Belize. And mm -hmm. so I went to Belize as well. And uh, the story there from the colonial archives was an American story. It was actually um, Budweiser, you know, Anheuser-Busch making inroads there. So I'm like, okay, this is not a British empire story. So my, we're like, all right, well, if South Africa is your case study, you can't really write about it with it without going there. And so I was like, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. That's my arm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I found like a, like, I mean, I didn't exactly get like a full grant. I was there for two weeks mm. with, you know, the time change, I mean, flying to another, to across several continents and I got there I had like a cheap Airbnb uh and just kind of threw down and it was a, it was insane too it was also like early December so which is like springtime summertime for yeah. South Africa and I reached out to a couple of local brewers and writers the librarians at the National Library were like here's a stack of everything and here's a bunch of stuff I thought you might like and so I dove deep I found some crazy stuff, a whole bunch of stuff I didn't even have time to write about um, and luckily I took a lot of scans because I don't know if you know about the fires that happened there um, not too long ago mm -hmm. um, coming down Table Mountain took out a lot of the University of Cape Town wow. uh, and mm -hmm. so I actually have a bunch of that digital stuff thankfully uh, so that's how South Africa came a part of it I was like all right it's British colony awesome they're producing ales and now they're producing lagers South African breweries being you know SAB come on one of the largest brewing companies I mean it's now AB InBev SAB <laughs> like one out of every four beers in the world right <laughs> and so the story of SAB is like a fun story to follow too so South Africa became a story of a whole beer brewing industry focused on importing British made equipment and training and the British ale style and everything focused on British beer and then suddenly you have some people over in the Transvaal gold mines near Joburg uh, Johannesburg um, with lager, castle lager. And then suddenly you have two British guys <laughs> producing castle lager and this whole industry that was based out of Cape Town gets flipped upside down. Um, so that that's actually been published. Uh, that's in uh, an edited work. Uh, the, that's the alcohol flows through cultures. I can see a copy of that one. So um, the article's yeah, that one's solid. <laughs> well, yeah, that's how South Africa came came through. It's kind of, you know, what colony has the most information? And it was just being a historian, it's kind of tell you, you know, whatever your sources are telling you. You got to follow the treasure map all the way to the end. 
It's so cool. It's kind of like a, it's like a virus, the lager virus that took over the planet, <laughs> killing the ale slowly. Great time to use that analogy. Yeah. Too soon, yeah. Andy. Too soon. <laughs> I didn't Too even soon. think about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, okay. You could say that craft beer was the inoculation. Yeah. Yes. There you go. It's yeah. the, the Pfizer or the Moderna of its day. That's yep. right. Yeah. Well, that's really, really awesome. I mean, Malcolm, we it's been about an hour, so we don't want to take up too much more of your time, gentlemen. We can push it if we want to. Yeah. I don't know if you have a bit more time, Malcolm. If you don't, it's fine. We can wrap it up. I know I, we I probably a have a few more, few more questions. I don't know, Garrett. Nick, I know I do, but I'm going to show you. Do it. Do it up. <laughs> if everybody has time go right ahead oh a little more time anyways. hey we'll push 15 20 more minutes something like that does that work malcolm yeah it works for me yeah let's go for it um yeah well wow it's it's really cool i mean it's always interesting to find so garrett and i we run um we run craft brewery tours in toronto and we do focus a lot of our tours on the history of beer and how they've been associated with the city of Toronto. And obviously we touch a lot on the British empire, just having Canada being uh, a former British colony. So it's really interesting to see, there are just a lot of mysteries in terms of the micro and macro effects of trends throughout the global market. So it's really interesting to get more of a deeper perspective on on exactly why the lager just just dominated the 20th century and like it it the way you're putting it together it, it just makes sense it's just sort of the whole british culture of keeping things internal and not wanting to share well that seemed to be detrimental to the effects of of contain of creating an internationally viable market whereas the german whereas central the the con continental europe just with a more liberal approach to its creation and its its trade and implementation and riding the waves of the industrial industrialization like it just that just makes sense to me yeah honestly that kind of makes me think of brexit <clears throat> speaking of keeping things close to your chest uh, <laughs> too soon malcolm <laughs> uh yeah 20th century kind of like rides its the continuing exploration because i mean if we look at north america too it's that's a different story from the rest of the world uh if we're looking at north america the story of the logger and the pilsner goes back to you know 1840s 1850s when you have the flood of german immigrants and czech immigrants all coming to to canada and to the united states um with brewing knowledge you know, like all the revolutions of 1848 and so on, you know, they're bringing all of that and they're going to produce what has already become the most popular beer in their area, this, you know, bottom fermented beer. And, you know, utilizing what is cost effective, corn and rice versus barley and all of that. And in the 20th century, it's a different story. Like it's so different from kind of how Pilsner spread and the 20th century I see is more of how Pilsner continued to dominate. Because what you see by the end of the 19th and at the very early part of the 20th century, you already seeing breweries on a scale. So the economies of scale. Uh, I mean, Budweiser is you know, developed in 1876 by Anheuser-Busch to be as be the most palatable beer possible. possible. And they tie that into like, all right, we're gonna produce this beer in St. Louis, 
but you know, we're gonna buy up this refrigerated rail company out of Chicago and we are going to distribute this beer and try and make sure that this beer tastes the same, mm-hmm. whether it's in Mexico City or New York City, coming out of St. Louis. So economies of scale. Uh, I mean, and in the United States too, you have, um, you've got the temperance movement, I mean, Canada as well. Um, you have the you know, Ontario Women's Christian Temperance Union as well as you did across the United States. Um, I mean, you even had prohibition, you know, with like the act, you know, from like, was it 1916 and 1927 nationally from, I think it was like 1918 and 1920 across Canada. And, but we see at the end of the 19th century, the target for temperance movements were generally focused on saloons, focused on hard alcohol. And a lot of temperance organizations were advocating for drinking beer, uh, like explicitly tying beer drinking to those German beer gardens, which were family friendly. You go there on, after church on Sunday, the kids are running around, you know, rosy cheeked and whatever. You're gonna drink a nice little, nice little Stein, um, mm-hmm. but you know, you're walking home with your family. You're not gonna be like going into like the male dominated saloon and getting sloshed and, you know, passing out someplace. So when you have the prohibition aspect at the beginning of the 20th century, the only one, only breweries that could really survive were the big ones. You know, they'd already been working on economies of scale. They already had enough to get through it. And they also had enough money to diversify. Whether in Pennsylvania, Yingling is producing ice cream. And, you know, other breweries are, you know, Coors in Colorado is producing high-end glassware for laboratories. Um, other, brewer, other breweries are producing, you know, malt extract sometimes hopped malt extract. Like, oh yeah, you know, I just want to add a little bit of just water to that. Um, sounds, so, like a, sounds like beer. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's like, you know, you, like, it becomes, it maintains dominance throughout the 20th, the early half of the 20th century, mostly through how big your company is and how well you can survive, not just temperance and prohibition, but then the Great Depression, which of course affects the entire world. You know, once beer becomes legalized, you know, again in the United States, uh, 1933, uh, you have a whole lot of breweries popping up. It's like, sweet, yes, everyone's going to start a brewery. You know, starting a business in the middle of the Great Depression, not not great business strategy. Uh, it's not going to work out very well. Um, so the ones they get through are the macro, you know, economies of scale, the ones who have already survived prohibition. And that continues on. So that's why, like, you know, people, by the time you get through World War II, you're not even thinking about what else you want to drink. You're not thinking, there's no, there hasn't been a variety since your grandfather's time. Like you're not, you're not thinking about what you're missing out on. You're just thinking about what beer is. And that, I mean, it takes until, you know, basically it takes until the 1980s to see a broader scale of recognition of what you're missing through Americans going and visiting Europe and trying, you know, if they're, if they're reading a whole lot or tied into the British scene, you know, you're learning about Michael Jackson, the world of beer. You know, you have some understanding about other types of beer. But how often are people looking for that? They're not. And so that's how Pilsner maintains its dominance throughout. Craft beer is still niche. You know, it's still like it is, it's still on a level of, of status, of class, uh, and unfortunately a whole lot on color and gender too. So it's something that, you know, hopefully is, is moving farther and farther outwards to 
being a broader part of just kind of you know a, a beer a beer culture that is not about you know what am I drinking, but you know how it's tied into a broader diverse community. So that's that's kind of like how craft beer should be going, in my opinion. It should be producing for a broader public, making the local an ex a an accessible local space for everybody. Not just what you're choosing, you know, in from the store, from the shelf, but recognizing who the people are that are producing that and and sending a broader message. You know, a brewery, a craft brewery is nothing if it doesn't have a story. As, as you know, doing beer, tour, beer tours, you, got it, you need that. A Pilsner does not have, it has a big story. <laughs> it has a really fun, big story, big historical story. And, and you see, honestly, if you look at like the brochures from South African breweries, their, their history has changed so many times over the 20th century. Like their tours have changed so many times over the 20th century. Because honestly, you see the difference between like apartheid South African breweries, post-apartheid South African breweries. It's a different story. But I feel like that. Imagine. Yeah. Oh, God, dude. Man. Yeah, just recorded a lecture for my class on apartheid, so it's in my mind. Um, right. Yeah, 20th century, wow. it's a mm -hmm. maintaining from the pre-building during the late 19th century of a style that already meant thing, that then becomes the only style. That's cool. And like those, like we try and with our events and we try and condense as much as we can. Obviously, we don't have like all the time we to tell the story of every beer as much as we'd love to. And, and I really love the uh, the insight and, and sort of the very in-depth look you've given us today. I think it's absolutely fantastic. So it, it's a little tough to do that sometimes on, uh, you know, when you're on a tour and you're, you're obviously sampling a number of different craft beers. And, and you know, just looking at uh, a bit of your resume, like you do some, you know, tours as well from what we've seen. So how, you know, I'm, I would assume that you're incorporating some of this historical aspect when you're going through your tour. So do you ever find that as a, as a, as a tough point? Maybe you go off on a couple of tangents because Andy and I definitely do. Uh, and, you know, how do you try and give that experience to, to your guests? Well, yeah, with, with my tours, I was, <clears throat> I was working with, uh, with City Brew Tours and uh, driving a 15-passenger van around uh, full of, you know, tourists, locals, bachelor parties, bachelorette parties, you know, and <laughs> I have found with, with yeah, traffic, we know I've, got it. About, I've got about seven hours in me um, <laughs> of, <laughs> of beer history. Um, Cause I will start from, from the beginning and then just, and just keep going. And most of the time, I don't even remember what I said. It's kind of like, you know, like I'm not gonna, I'm driving and I've just go, I'm just kind of like, all right. Yep. Yep. Someone asks a question. I'm like, Yes, answer, answer, answer. And where was I? Okay, back into the flow. Um, <laughs> what, I, what I basically just kind of try and do is, because every style has a story. That's what's so much fun. I mean, I was just teaching, I, I did, a, did a lecture recently on um, 1989. So Leipzig, Germany, protests start there uh, in East Germany. And like, all right, let's make a talk about, drinking. you know. Wow. Oh, dude. Mm. oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> 1989. 1989. So, <laughs> so I just dive in a little bit and I'm like, oh, let's talk about the Goza for just a second. Because my students love that too. I mean, whether they're drinking or not, they're kind of like, well, this is totally random and weird and I like it. So, you know, same thing with beer tours where I'm just kind of like, all right, we can, here's a little piece about this. Here's a little piece about that. And time's up. Let's go to the next place. You know, it's, 
you know, you can drop dropping in and out of the stories uh, from the years of, of, of reading and research on history of beer broadly, uh, very broadly, um, and things that, you know, all the different projects I've worked on, I can kind of jump in and out of any time period, um, pretty much any culture, any perspective, we can go anthropologically, we can go ec like economically, we can go business-wise, we can just talk about, you know, like the taxation of beer in, you know, like with Nineveh, I mean, we can talk about Babylon, or we can talk about Egypt, or we can talk about the monks and, you know, the, uh, you know, <laughs> looking at Gruet, you know, coming out of Gruet tract, which was like a license, you know, like all of that kind of coming through, you can kind of just fly, I mean, flying through it. And, keeps them on their toes and uh, keeps me interested. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that's a good we, point. Like I guess it just comes up, you know, as, as certain questions come up, maybe you'll go and talk about that thing or, or maybe whatever beer you're sampling, you know, you, you'll create cater some of the content to that. So, um, but yeah, you know, you can go forever and that that's awesome. It's always a good, you know, good thing to have. <laughs> yeah. It, it's so much fun because you always have to, you're catering to your, to your audience especially if you uh, are going for tips. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's, that's true, right? Were those tours in, they were in Boston, Malcolm? Is that where they were? Yep, yep Boston. I also did a couple around Burlington, Vermont too. Do you, do you still do them or no? Um, God, not in a long time. I want to say just too busy. Um, really like it helped me uh, <laughs> afford my summers generally. <laughs> it was more of a kind of like, all right, I'm not teaching right now and I need to keep doing this. And yeah, tips were you know, hopefully good. <laughs> totally depend on the customers. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, I haven't really done one for quite some time. But of mm -hmm. course, everything was closed down for the pandemic, pandemic too. So. Of course, yeah, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can always get back to it and hopefully next year or so. Yeah, yeah. Especially being back in Boston in the fall. It's going to be uh, a... <laughs> oh, be what a, a beautiful time to be back in Boston. Yeah. Oh. Definitely, especially once the temperature goes back down. <laughs> yeah, so, jealous of you up north, the great white north. I don't, you know, I'm just like keeping that temperature down. I like it. <laughs> well, if we make our way to Boston, Malcolm, perhaps we could trouble, annoy, and bother you to host us on a tour of um, the greater Boston. Oh, yeah, I feel Absolutely. like it wouldn't be a bother if we ask for history because if you have seven hours. Yeah, yeah, maybe I think we seven have, hours. Maybe we have about <laughs> seven hours of beer time, eh? That's okay. Exactly. Oh yeah, I could totally show you guys around. I can tell you exactly, <laughs> like, yeah, where to go, who to talk to, and yeah, we'd have a good time for sure. That'd be great. Just let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we hope to go. We actually, Garrett and I, we had last year. We started a like a video series of going outside of. Toronto to see the the craft beer cultures of the the medium-sized cities in southern Ontario and we definitely want to when we can expand to visiting cities in the United States and Boston's definitely definitely on the list so, for sure yeah so we will let oh, you know we will make a sure. tour of Boston Vermont and yep. uh Montreal mm. oh yeah I'm just gonna sure. throw myself in there too uh, yeah. I'm gonna tag along even if yeah, I'm not invited I'm yeah. just gonna go no you're invited Oh, good. <laughs> we'll call it the, the East Coast IPA tour. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, Malcolm, you've been so generous to give us this much time, so we won't keep you uh, any longer. But uh, on behalf of Beer Got Me Here and Rolling Hops Beer Tours, we thank you so much. And seriously, we would love to have you back on again 
because yeah. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of uh, some pretty fun beer content and beer history. If you'll, if hey. you'll come back, I don't know. <laughs> hey, I'd love to. This is a great time. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. Yeah, it was love a it. pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely awesome. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Malcolm, and we'll see you next time. Cheers. That's great. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening as well. You can help my podcast grow by sharing my podcast with family and friends and subscribe on whichever platform from where you're listening. Also, check out my Instagram at beergotmehere for beer photos and future beer reviews. For more information on Rolling Hops Beer Tours, their website and a link to all their media is in the episode description. We will see you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.